You're listening to episode 11 of the Ecology Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Blazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about life history strategies, the domestication of dogs, and animal development. So this week, we are talking about life history strategies and life history patterns. Uh, So an organism's life history is the pattern of growth, development, and reproduction over the course of its life. Since fitness is a measure of the organism's reproductive success, we know that natural selection will favor the life history strategy that results in the greatest number of offspring that survive to produce offspring of their own. Now, this has really important implications on both survivorship, or mortality rate, and birth rate, which we call fecundity, of an individual in a population, and these are related to the amount of energy that is used to reproduce over a given time. This is known as the reproductive effort. There's trade-offs based on physiology, energetics, and habitat that exist in the way an organism reproduces, the age at which it reproduces, the amount of energy dedicated to reproduction, the number and size of eggs, seeds, and the young, and the timing of reproduction. Ultimately, these trade-offs manifest in current benefits versus costs of producing offspring earlier or later. And uh, so earlier reproduction means earlier sexual maturity, less growth, reduced fecundity, reduced survivorship, and reduced potential for future reproduction, while later reproduction means increased growth, later maturity, and increased survivorship, but less time for reproduction over the course of the lifetime of the individual. Now, as reproductive effort increases, we see parental survival decrease due to the amount of energy required to care for young either uh, for young over longer periods of time uh, due to the sheer number of offspring. Organisms, organisms that produce offspring more than once over their lifetimes are known as iteroparous, while organisms that use all of their energy by sacrificing themselves for reproduction are known as semilparous. Now, mating systems, or the pattern of mating between males and females in a population, are a really interesting area where the environment strongly influences an organism's life history strategy. Examples of life history strategies include monogamy, where a lasting pair bond is formed, as well as promiscuity, where males and or females mate with multiple partners. Now, the choice of mating system is determined by the amount of dual parental investment needed for offspring to survive in a given environment, so this can change. Energetics also plays an important role in sexual selection, with the maintenance of energetically expensive traits like horns or bright colors being used for either direct competition with the same sex for mates, which we call intrasexual selection, or competition for attention from the opposite sex, which is intersexual selection. We'll actually get into that on a future episode. Lastly, a number of models exist showing the interplay between life history strategies and, uh, and the environment. And so the two major ones are the fast-slow continuum hypothesis, which states that a species can be arranged along a continuum based on adult mortality levels, while the RK selection um, model places organisms on a continuum of temporary to long-lasting competitive ability in a given environment. And so there's a ton of things that we can talk about life history strategies, but I think that really covers the, the gist of it. Um, we'll come back to this topic, like I mentioned, with, uh, with sexual selection uh, in further episodes when we're talking about behavior. But from here, I will jump to the paper. So this week, I picked a paper from Nature Scientific Reports by Madeline Geiger and her colleagues across uh, Europe. So Switzerland and Montpellier in France and Cambridge and all these fun, fun places. And the, the title of the paper is Neomorphosis and Heterochrony of Skull Shape in Dog Domestication. And it was published in 2017. So really, what, so what the authors are looking at were 
the skull patterns or, or patterns in the skull morphology in both dogs and wolves. Uh, the retention of juvenile traits in wolves and dogs has been put forward as a way to describe both anatomical but also behavioral differences. Uh, the shorter, more juvenile, baby-like skulls seen in some dogs has been described as pedomorphic, while the dogs that have features that are not seen in wolves are known as neomorphic. So these are neomorphic traits, so new morphs. Uh, pedomorphic traits refer to changes in a trait over an organism's development, while neomorphic traits refer to spatial changes in an organism. Another way to look at this is that if you took a pedomorphic dog and allowed it to keep growing, it would eventually look the same as, say, an adult wolf, but it would just take longer. And this is what's known as heterochrony. Neomorphic individuals, on the other hand, would never actually look like a wolf because the traits that they have from birth or from very early in their development are traits that wolves don't have, and so we call this heterotopy. The authors wanted to see how much neomorphic traits and pedomorphic traits rely, uh, will really contribute to domesticated dogs when you compare them to wolves. So first thing they wanted to see was, during development, do unique neomorphic features appear in dogs, um, or rather when that happens in the development? And the second thing they really wanted to look at was if there actually was evidence for pedomorphic traits in dogs. The authors hypothesized that if the differences seen between dogs and wolves was development-related, then changes in traits would be parallel, with dogs lagging behind but eventually reaching the same end goal. If the differences seen were neomorphic, then the traits would diverge, with dogs having traits that wolves would never have. Now, what, the, what the, the scientists here did was they took 110 different dog-like creatures, so that's 39 wolves and 71 domesticated dogs from a variety of different breeds, and they scanned their skulls using 34 different landmark coordinates, uh, well, skull landmark coordinates, uh, into a computer. And I should also note here that no dogs or wolves were killed during any of this, so there's plenty of living happy puppies um, at the end of the day. A, uh, a Procrustes shape analysis was used to extract the shape of those dogs and wolves' skulls from the coordinate data that they collected based on those, those landmarks, and this was averaged to make, uh, make it fit into a covariance matrix. A principal component analysis was then used to compare the shapes visually, and a MANOVA was used to actually quantify those differences between the, the, the groups, the, the, the different kind of subgroups of, of dogs and wolves, um, or, or what we would call breeds. Then the statistical package R and, a, and one of the packages that, uh, that is freely available was used to compare juvenile and adult differences to see if there was changes across the development of the, the organism. Now what the, the researchers found was that there was a shared development pattern between dogs and wolves, but the skulls were already different from birth, which supports both the neomorphic and pedomorphic hypotheses, but at different points during the development of the dogs. The authors also state that the adult skull shape can't be used to reliably say whether the traits that we see in dogs are a result of a shift toward longer development rates. Um, it's likely that new traits are not from recent artificial selection for dog breeds, but probably due to relaxed selection from ancient dogs living near humans, and maybe even early humans breeding them for tameness and fast reproduction, as opposed to, say, looking a certain way like we breed them today. The authors conclude by saying that a move toward longer development times would allow for more tameness, more behavioral and developmental flexibility for a new environment, and a better ability for the brain to respond to different social contexts. And that could actually explain the behaviors that we see in dogs today. Now what's really interesting is towards the end of the paper, they also mention that similar processes might be what's responsible for why we humans are the way we are today when we compare ourselves to the other great apes. Now, there's a number of things I liked and disliked about this paper. I think they did a, did a pretty cool job. Uh, 
looking at, at dogs. And I mean, who doesn't want to do that? That's a pretty awesome experiment. Uh, I really like the human angle at the end, really tying that into, into people and possibly why we are the way we are. Um, and the fact that it was a, is a fairly simple experiment. I mean, nothing was harmed and honestly, something similar could be done with free software that's available these days, uh, online, tons of open source software. Um, and it's just, I, I just think it's a very, very interesting, uh, interesting experiment. Now, the things that I think could have been done better is that I think the researchers could have written this in a better context or, or put it in, in the, the kind of larger context better because I think it's a really, really interesting story, but um, they they fell short in making it as relatable to the general reader, the average reader, as it could be. Um, and I also think they could have gone a little bit deeper into the implications of what pedomorphic and neomorphic traits have. Uh, there's some really interesting work in dinosaurs actually showing the, um, that, that these different traits can, uh, life history, well, these different traits can kind of have these cascades down a larger life history, um, history strategies and, and parental care and all these things. So there's, I think there's some really interesting implications that they could have, could have gone into more. Um, I have a whole bunch of, Really, really um, kind of, well, just a bunch of questions I want to go into with you guys. But first, I think I'll, I'll hand it off to you, Kyle, and see what, uh, what did you think about the, the, the paper? Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, an interesting read that kind of, you know, kind of points to how heterochrony or uh, change in the timing of developmental processes can really um, lead to altered morphological characteristics. So kind of highlighting the importance of altered gene expression rather than uh, gene frequencies in a population. So I thought that was an interesting read because of that. Um, I, I agree with you that the, I, I think the implications were a little, a uh, little lacking. I, I think there's a lot of, of interesting ways that you could kind of um, implement this into other types of research that they did really just could have talked more about. On my end, I think that it was an interesting paper. I was really excited when I when I saw the title of that paper, uh, and then I started reading it, and I found that um, well, the format of the text itself was very hard to follow, just because it's super dense. You know, it's one thing that it's not as accessible vocabularily speaking, but it is a dense text physically speaking as well. So it was kind of hard to read it, but the content was very interesting. Um, what I found that they could have done better um, as well. I'll start with the bad stuff, you know? Um, essentially, is that they, they've been talking about dogs and how like they have, they have like that parallel uh, um, morphology that shows that, you know, there's both the neomorphic aspect but also the pedomorphic aspect. But we, we don't really know how this could apply or how we could see it in other experiments of domestication that we, we might know of. And the fact that they haven't talked about, let's say, the um, domestication of foxes, uh, of fox, and even other species uh, for different reasons, that makes it makes makes it more interesting for us because we'll be able to discuss it now. But I think they could have added some other species uh, in their discussion part just to say what we could expect in the future in domestication of other exotic species, as, as an example. Well, that's actually one of the things that I wanted to kind of see what you guys thought of. I, I, I agree with you, Charlie. I mean, they, there's definitely this, um, th there's a lot of other examples of domestication that we see that I think the authors could have, could have gone into. Um, so do you think we'll see the same thing? Do, I mean, first of all, do you guys think that, um, 
that the same things would happen to the domesticated animals that we see today in the future? And also, what examples uh, have you guys seen, either in the research, but also just in your day-to-day lives, of, uh, of these kind of trends emerging? So these, these younger-looking organisms coming from um, you know, a domesticated background you know, within a city or, or, or even as a pet. Yeah, I think I think so. Like these characteristics and this, you know, uh, neoteny or retention of juvenile characteristics. We're not really necessarily going to see this in all domestication processes, but probably uh, domestication where we're selecting for individuals that um, are tame or like um, have more agreeable temperaments. Um, so thinking of like selection for cows, for example, like would we think that are like are we selecting for for juvenile characteristics in a cow? Maybe maybe not. Uh, whereas a dog, yes, because we're looking at something that's you know we want it to be like less aggressive, more um, more social, right? So these are things that um, something like a puppy would have, something some kind of characteristic that's that's favorable to us. So it really depends, I think, on on what species we're talking about and what we're actually intending to domesticate the species for. I mean, I totally agree with you, Kyle, that it depends on the, our need from that species. And if, if we talk about domestication for, for cattle or for, for, as a food source, we might look for other sort of selection. And if we look at domestication in the sense of pure human, uh, you know, need for love, uh, having a pet in your house, just, to have a fluffy thing or just walking around or hopping around if you want a kangaroo in your house. But um, I, I just think that these uh, morphological traits that are more associated with juvenile stages uh, will tend to show in many other mammal species. Uh, I've read in some articles talking about that essentially, that um, the, neural, neural, the neural crest, as an example, and uh, the genes that are related to, to tameness might be very well related to the development of or the migration of cells from the neural crest to different parts of the body. And that's why we can see like in the fox and in the dogs that were domesticated, the, the ears, the tail, and other parts of the body, and even the face, that they look more more like juvenile parts of, of the wolf bodies just because all these genes are somewhat, that have an impact on not only like behavioral aspects, but also morphological aspects and physiological aspects. You know, so like that selection that we do even without knowing it has a pretty big impact on what the animal actually looks like once it's domesticated. So actually, well, there's a, a number of things that, that you just brought up, Charlie, that I actually want to go into. Um, and, and so the, actually, so the neural crest, we're going to get back to that because I, I want to go into that a bit deeper. Um, cause I'm curious on, on what you found in your, in your, in your readings, but, um, very quickly. So the, the idea you mentioned, of, um, you know, having kangaroos as a pet, well, uh, you know, we know that in, in, well, in Australia, for example, there's the, the WIRES program, right? The, I forgot what it stands for. It's an acronym. It's a wildlife conservation group. And essentially what they do is they, um, you know, they're, they're the ones that you call if, um, if you come across a kangaroo that's been hit on the side of the road or, or any other animal that you see in distress. Um, they come, they pick it up, and, uh, and they rehabilitate the animal. And the idea is that this animal then goes out to the wild if it can be sent back out. Um, one of the programs that they do is they actually have people adopt these um, these these animals. And one of the, I mean, unfortunately common things that happens in Australia is that a lot of kangaroos carrying their babies, carrying the joeys, get hit on the on the roads. I'm, I'm sure, Charlie, you've, you've come across this this work. 
Um, and so one of the things, in, the, in fact, it's actually mandated by law is if you come across a kangaroo on, that's been hit by a car, you actually have to get out and check its pouch to make sure there's no young inside. And, uh, and you're supposed to actually carry spray paint with you. And if you check this, this, uh, the pouch and there's no Joey, then you just put a, you put a big X essentially to tell other drivers that you've already checked this. Um, now if there is a Joey inside, you call wires, they, you might bring it to the nearest gas station and they'll come in and they'll, they'll pick up this animal and this animal will then go to live with a, a, a household, like a, a family, um, maybe in the, within the city, for example. And so one has to wonder what's the long-term consequences of bringing these joeys, um, these, these young, young animals, um, that are still very early in the, de- in their development stage. You know, they haven't actually weaned off their mother yet, um, into a, uh, into a household when they're in this critical development time. And then for the purpose of sending it back out in the wild, I mean, do we do we think that this this animal can can survive? I mean, even not even just from a behavioral perspective, but just the fact that it's been, you know, as a single individual being domesticated. Um, what what long term consequences could this have on the population? No, that's a really good question. I've been thinking about that, and I am actually guilty of following one of these um, kangaroo sanctuary pages on Instagram, uh, just because I needed to get in the mood before the field season. And what I found um, pretty interesting is that humans will adopt these kangaroos, as you said, uh, with this program. And it's actually um, any marsupial in Australia that gets hit on the road. The same protocol has to be applied, whether it's a wallaby, a kangaroo, or any other marsupial species. Um, if it has been roadkill, we have the mandate to check the pouch and spray paint an egg on the, on the belly or, or on the pouch uh, if it's been checked already. And, um, yeah, so... These individuals that are brought back in the in let's say in the wild, they they have been weaned by humans. So that aspect, I think I, I'm have I'm not um, I don't know enough about the topic itself to know what the implications of of such a procedure would have on on these young, but will will it have an impact evolutionary speaking? I'm not a hundred percent sure because. We just essentially completed the, the task of the mother, which was to wean the young to leave it and go off in the wild. So as long as as the same protocol is followed and, and we we wean the, or we um, milk feed the young for a few months, and then at around about 20, 21 months, the young should be weaned and should be able to only eat grass. In my opinion, it should not make a big difference in its way it, in the way it would survive in a predator-free environment, of course, because. Essentially, as long as the young has some interaction with other kangaroos, it, it should be able to to reproduce. And if there's no predator around, there's no problem if it's predator shy and has never seen a predator. So I think anything that would be found below the dingo fence, uh, which is the, the fence that was made uh, <laughs> a couple of centuries ago to avoid having any predation in the cattle um, farming environment in the south of Australia, so if there's no predator around, I think it would not be a huge problem for young that were weaned in households to have uh, some sort of success in the wild afterwards. Yeah, I would I would agree with Charlie. So it's the biggest component that you're removing from this captive rearing is the the predation pressures, right? So it's um, one you mentioned a, a a bit earlier. You're saying that maybe there's altered developmental processes as well because we've changed, let's say, the diet or something somewhat. So that could could be another thing that's happening, um, but the the main one would be those predation pressures. And when you're when you're rearing individuals in a captive environment, 
you know, you're really removing the learning component uh, to, to development. So it's anything that's associated and is a, a learn behavior, um, you know, you could think that maybe those, um, those uh, stimulus, that, that stimulus isn't there anymore. So that could alter behavior later in life. In terms of, um, you know, changing uh, things on a population level, if there's no, I don't think there's there's a change in the genetic elements of the individual, then it's it shouldn't be a problem when you get to the next generation. Um, so maybe reducing the fitness of that individual, but not necessarily uh, the fitness of the population as a whole. And to add something to that, quickly, uh, you, we might observe a lower reproductive success for the young that were recovered from their mother that was roadkill, as an example. Um, but yeah, again, as you said, Cal, I don't think there would be any evolutionary impact on that situation just because there was no artificial selection made by men. It would just be um, the random individual that his mom got hit by a car, as an example, that would maybe have a lower reproductive success, but that would not really have to do anything with uh, its genetic or its fitness, as, a, as an example. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the things the authors actually bring up in their paper. Um, in the methodology, they, they actually had a, you know, part of their selection criteria for deciding on which, which wolves to, to pick. They mentioned that they, they only picked wolves that were not older than one month old because any wolf older than one month, one, one month old um, what actually had a, has had a morphological change in its skull. So the, the shape of its head changed just from the fact that it was raised in captivity. So actually I should mention that. So older than one month old in captivity. Um, so, so we see that there's this, this, um, this difference in between individuals that were raised in captivity. I mean, this is from birth, of course, in this case, um, when a, once they pass one month uh, compared to ones that, that grew in the wild. And, um, and so they actually, in fact, omitted these, these wolves. So any, any wolf that was older than a month old was not used for this experiment. Um, so, what, what, I mean, what do you, how, how can we say that these results are applicable then? I mean, what do you guys think in terms of the, uh, the applicability of this research? So, I mean, if, if it doesn't affect it on the population level, could we say that this research is inapplicable? Or if there's a morphological change um, just from the fact that, that in, in the case of this paper, these wolves are raised in captivity, um, I mean, why, why do you think that the authors would decide not to, <laughs> not to use those? Yeah, I mean, I think you, they definitely should have included it because that's, sort of a plastic developmental process that's happening there. And that's, you know, you're certainly, if you see that in domestication of wolves, you're going to see it in the domestication of other dogs as well. So I think if anything, that might've been a a more, um, a more relevant population to look at than, um, than the less than one month old uh, wolves that they used. Do you remember the reason why they used less than one month old? I uh, can't remember exactly why it was the case. Yeah, so they, they stated that, uh, here, I'll bring it up in the paper. Um, yeah. It's towards the, it's in the methodology section, <laughs> and they mentioned, so captive wolves, wolves were only considered if they were less than one month old because skull shape can be greatly altered in captive specimens. So, mm-hmm. so um, and it says, however, these changes were not considered extensive in very young specimens. Uh, so so essentially they're saying that that after one month old um the the wolf skulls become so the wolf skulls from from wolves that were raised in captivity 
essentially look nothing like a wolf skull for a wolf that that grew up in the wild. But I mean, one month is is nothing, right? On the in the grand that's scheme right. of things. Um, so that's that's kind of where my concern is in, in the sense that mm-hmm. if if we're taking what they're saying saying here, I mean, I guess it can go two ways. I mean, on one side, maybe they should have actually looked at those those skulls, and actually would have been good if they could get wild wolves, but maybe that's a bit of an issue. Um, <laughs> those poor graduate students or undergraduate students, of course, um, that are stuck having to, to wrangle some of these wolves in the wild. Um, High predation rate in the lab, you know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you know maybe one could then do a life history, um, a life history strategy thing, comparing different lab groups and see what's the the mortality rate for a for an undergraduate versus a graduate student versus a, a PhD and a postdoc or something, a master's and PhD postdoc exactly. in that lab. I think but, I think it would just be a low recruitment rate, you know, low undergrads <laughs> that would make it to the master's. That's true. Yeah. Will they, will they get to the age where they can produce more, more students themselves? Um, so yeah, so yeah, so, so really it was just that it was greatly altered, um, skull shape in these captive individuals. So that's where I was kind of thinking, you know, if, if, if that's the case, I mean, I don't know how long the, um, you know, wires and, and these different sanctuaries, uh, raise these, these kangaroos and other marsupials for, but I mean, if it's anything in, at least in the case of a wolf greater than a month, it sounds like, uh, you know, it's already changed physically um, so much that it might not even be would even be recognizable to others in the same species. I don't know. Um, but actually, then in that so, case, sorry, yeah, yeah, no, very quickly, um, yeah, I did, I did read as well that I mean, as you said, it's very plastic at these stages of life, and I don't know how captive to rear the wolves uh, are fed if it's very different from a wild wolf diet. But I'm sure it is very different. Uh, it would be very hard to mimic all the conditions that a, a wild wolf would go through as a as a young, and that's probably that probably has an impact greater than we can even see. And, like the conditions that the wolf experiences in the wild are much more broad than what we can actually measure and see. So I think that taking the wolf that early before one month old is legitimate to you know like take all the the variables that are linked to captivity out of the equation to compare like a, the most wild juvenile wolf we could get compared to the domesticated dogs. So I think that would make sense for this experiment to have the least impact of the captivity um, syndrome for these wolves. So another thing that the, um, and it's related to this, this selecting of, um, of actually in this case, both dogs and wolves, the, the researchers only considered adults to be, individuals where all the permanent teeth were fully erupted. So in the sense that wolves like, like, um, like humans, you know, they lose their, their baby teeth and they actually have these larger permanent teeth, um, that, uh, that they then maintain for the rest of their life. So they considered an adult to be one that had all these permanent teeth fully erupted, but we know that in other species, including humans, um, many species can, can reproduce well before all the adult teeth have erupted. I mean, within humans, um, a person can, can theoretically start producing offspring from something like age eight, right? And certainly not all of, all of their teeth have, have, have fallen, right? They still have these, these baby teeth and, and the adult teeth will only come in later on. Um, and so when we talk about maturity and, and adults by the definition of, um, of what we call, you know, a biologically what's an adult, we say, you know, one that can actually then reproduce, right? Reproductive maturity. Um, but to me, it sounds like, you know, if they, 
um, if they looked at the, the morphology of an individual that had its teeth, or I mean, it's I guess it, the, the an, an analog really quickly would be, you know, if you look at an eight-year-old, right, versus you looked at an eighteen-year-old, morpholo- a human, morphologically they're very different, right? But theoretically, they're you know, the eight-year-old is just as <laughs> capable of 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 siring offspring or having offspring as the 18 year old, of course, survival and things like that change. But the fact is it's still, they're still reproductively mature by our, the biological definition. Um, so in the case here, it's like, they're only looking at, let's say the 18 year olds, right? The ones that already have all their teeth out. Um, and so they miss this massive reproductive window where, um, certain individuals or, or in fact, probably most individuals are reproducing before they have all these teeth out. So what impact do you guys think this would have on the results? I don't know if you guys picked up on that and if you if you had any thoughts. Yeah, I think um, the reason they've done that is because it, for, for the case of this study, they're not really concerned with the reproductive window, right? So it's much more important to make sure that the skulls finish growing. And so using uh, uh, teeth as the, the, the sort of standard for when that's occurred, well, if teeth are timed to occur right after skull, the skulls finish growing, uh, it seems to make sense in this context to me. And on my end, um, to bring it back to other animals like uh, humans or kangaroos, um, we do grow a lot after sexual maturities. So as Kyle said, I think that's a, to to look at an adult male as or adult individual, I'm sorry, as the last thing that would grow in its body. I think that doesn't make sense. The, or the last thing that would develop in its body, that doesn't make sense. So that way we don't have like different uh, morphologies. We can have like a one end point of the morphology in the adult size and then the youngest end point for the juveniles. So I think it is legitimate to think about a different uh, facial feature um, to represent adulthood compared to sexual maturity that would not necessarily be as pertinent to add to to this question that is essentially about comparing morphology between two, uh, two species. Right. Cause, cause age is, is variable, right? I mean, it's a number we give, but it doesn't mean that each individual is at the same point in the de- uh, developmental process. So if you pick something like, okay, tooth emergence, that's a much better predictor of what level of development that individual has reached rather than age. Cause it's kind of, it's kind of arbitrary. Oh, absolutely. I agree that, 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 you know, when we have what we're saying age, it is an arbitrary, you know, value that we're giving. Um, but when we're constructing these life history tables, and, and I guess my concern is when we're looking at the rate of development of these individuals, right? We want to see from, from the, from the heterotopic side, I can understand it, it doesn't matter too much when we look at, you know, the stage simply because we want to see if equivalent stages of the organism maintain the same spatial characteristics, right? The actual shape. Um, but when we start wanting to look at the heterochrony, the actual change over time, it seems to me that there'd be missing data points over that development stage. So it's in a sense, like if we're comparing a, a fully adult dog, adult in the sense it's all its teeth are out versus a fully adult wolf with all its teeth out. Sure. We can compare the two of them because as you mentioned, Kyle, the, the skull has stopped developing, but when we're looking at actual trajectory based on, um, heterochrony, so the, the, this, uh, the pedomorphic side that we're looking at, um, I feel like we're, we end up losing a lot of points because imagine if we're, we're cons- what we're considering to be adult in one species, it's much further along developmentally speaking um, from the perspective of reproduction. Because again, all of this comes back to the idea of, of fitness and, and reproductive success, right? So 
to me, it seems like it, it would be a shortcoming simply because on a spatial scale, we can compare them, but a temporal scale, we might be looking at two different, different scales entirely. Um, but that's, that's kind of my concern with, with, with avoiding the, um, the, the, the adults, the, 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 the sexually mature adults that have, that still retain juvenile characteristic, including teeth, right? Because we want to look at whether or not they're maintaining these juvenile characteristics or not, um, in a similar pattern. Well, one of those juvenile characteristics would be the, uh, the teeth of the, like the, the, the juvenile teeth, the, the young teeth, right? Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I agree. Uh, so I guess it depends which characteristics you're looking at, right? So if we're talking about uh, just the skull morphology, if you take two adults that are, um, you know, like you said, regardless of where they are on that process, if you call them an adult and there's no more change occurring, you should still see those differences between the two populations. But if you look at it within a single population and follow it across time. Yeah. Then it starts getting kind of sketchy. So I wonder, I wonder what they're, and I, I think, I guess they touch upon it a little bit as well. They do mention that they, they would need a, a larger sample size. Um, and, um, and actually in fact, so they, they, they didn't completely omit the very much, much older individuals. I mean, the earlier when I said that the, uh, the captive wolves, you know, less than or older than one month. In fact, they do use ones that are older, but they use, um, significantly older individuals, so say over ten years of age, uh, when they're looking at at some of these adults, because that's that's essentially the the gap between what they consider to be a, a young or baby wolf or dog, you know, less than one month, and an adult being over ten years later. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of data points in between that um, that I think could have been expanded upon. Um, so actually, from from here, I mean, because there's these different different traits, um, I'm actually kind of curious. What do you guys think in terms of benefits and consequences to having these neomorphic versus pedomorphic traits? I think, I mean, I think that's something we both we we well we all mentioned. Um, you know, could have could have been better developed in this paper. Um, you know, to actually relate this these different traits to um, to the bigger picture, to, to, you know, why, why would we want to have one versus the other? So I don't know, what, what do you guys think in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, say benefits of having new traits versus maintaining juvenile traits? I think maintaining juvenile traits is essentially the response to, uh, you know, as you, we mentioned in previous episodes of relaxed selection, just the fact that there's not as big of a selection happening. Let's say we talk about, um, the pre-domesticated species that just ended up uh, roaming around villages uh, or human settlements. These species didn't have to get the same facial shape or the same strong jaw to, to eat their prey. They could just forage in the dumpsters or in the leftover food from these villages. So in my opinion, I think these uh, juvenile traits is just the, these like the the traits were not as selected upon there was not as strong of a selection happening so the longer snout or the the narrower the stronger jaw were not as important for these individuals to survive so i think like with anything that has to do with domestication um the advantage would be to allocate the resources differently in, in, instead of growing faster and and reaching adulthood or adult size quicker in wild populations these like domesticated populations were able to to allocate the resources differently 
because again the relation was the selection sorry was was a bit more relaxed yeah uh, i agree so uh, sl- uh relaxed selection pressures are a really a good way that this kind of thing could happen but i think it could just be altered selection pressures as well so if you think of this as um a change in in gene expression rather than um total gene frequencies in an individual this is a really rapid way of adapting to a novel circumstance in the environment and of course that what how these these kind of uh, what traits will actually be selected for it's going to differ on a case-by-case basis so it really depends uh, what that novel stimulus is that it's that that the traits responding to so I think there's this this idea. I don't know if you've uh, if you've come across this, but this idea of children as parasites, right, to their parents, um, not just in humans. I'm sure as many many parents have at one point or another thought about their child, but um, but in terms of of actual energetic parasites, you know, in an ideal situation, a ch- a child, a, an offspring of an organism, will want to take all as much energy, if not all of the energy, from the parent for itself, right? One hundred percent transfer of energy. Um, we kind of see this happening with uh, with some, you know, certain young. Uh, there's the idea of altricial versus precocial young, right? Altricial young, I believe, being the young that are essentially helpless and and just kind of sitting there and really need their parents. Um, parents to to care for them until they get to a specific age i mean humans are a great example of that uh versus precocial young where you have um you know young that are actually able to very very quickly um start performing its normal normal duties um we see this in in elephants for example which you know within an hour need to be up on their feet and going because you can't afford you know lots of parental care um i mean they have parental care but the same level of parental, they're not completely helpless. Um, and I mean, and in birds where you have, in fact, some of the, the organisms, and this is where I was getting at with these kind of parasites is when you start getting, um, it's a two offspring, the one that hatches first will sometimes purposely kill the other one so that it maintains all of its energy for itself. Um, and in some cases, this has actually been used by other species of birds, such as the cuckoo bird to kind of hijack the system and, and put its own, uh, baby in, in place and have that kill off all the other ones and then the, the other mother is forced to take care of this offspring which isn't its its own um, so this idea of, of children of offspring as parasites um, certainly there'd be this this benefit to an offspring trying to stay with its parent for as long as possible um, without being killed and it, it reminds me of this this exhibit at um at uh, one of the, the natural history museums, well, in in, um, in Montana actually, and uh, it they had this this exhibit about triceratops and um, well, yeah, it was it was triceratops or, or one of one of those those that group and uh, the Tyrannosaurus, the Tyrannosaurus rex, and they showed that the the carnivores, the Tyrannosaurus, actually they, well they lost their their juvenile characteristics earlier on, so. Or, or the flip side is the triceratops maintain these juvenile characteristics well into sexual maturity. So, in fact, an adult, reproductively active triceratops still would be, you know, at home because it it maintained these youthful characteristics. Um, and that, in fact, was an advantage, of course, to the, the triceratops because it means that, you know, it still gets the parental care, but it's also using that energy that it's getting from the parents to leave 
leave as many offspring as they can. Whereas the Tyrannosaurus, um, they didn't have the parental care. As soon as they reached a certain age and it was quite young, they were immediately kicked out of the um, you know, out of the nest because they were seen as a threat. And we kind of see this with snow leopards today, where snow leopard offspring will stay with the mother usually for about, a, I believe, one season. But as soon as that season's done, I mean, they have to take off and they're on their own because they're not only are they, uh, are they at risk for the mother itself, but then the mother's looking to mate again and, and maximize her own fitness. And so other males may come and, and kill these offspring if they don't take off. Um, so, you know, the, this maybe, you know, we can start making these inferences on, say, Tyrannosaurus and say, you know, female Tyrannosaurus rexes were, were you know, mating much more frequently. Um, and this tells us a little bit about the life history strategies. So anyway, this, this idea of, of babies as parasites um i've seen as as a as a an example of why you know it, it's an advantage to have these pedomorphic traits over the long term um now of course for the the adult for the the, the parents that's not as as um beneficial of a of a scenario right because they have to put more energy into less offspring um, but when I was looking at neomorphic traits, I mean, for one, I actually, I'm curious what you guys think about this idea of, of using this, these traits, um, even let's say skull morphology, because this was actually, I should mention all this stuff on the dinosaurs was based solely on skull morphology. Um, and this idea of using this, the skull morphology to infer upon things like parental care and other life history strategies that are very important in saying, you know, what does it look like? What is the, what does a lifetime of this individual organism look like? But also the idea of neomorphic traits. What's the advantage of having these newer traits that let's say the adult doesn't have? Yeah, I think uh, what you were saying about uh, the dinosaurs, it's, or the, the idea of looking at it as uh, children as parasites, um, I don't know if that's a really good way of looking at it. Like they're definitely manipulating parents, but the thing is uh, these characteristics, they're optimized. If, if the, the offspring was being, it was at to a certain point where it was detrimental to the parent to keep investing in it, then you wouldn't see the persistence of these traits in the population. So it's uh, there's, there's definitely like an optimum level of like this kind of manipulative behavior and uh, and it is adaptive. I don't think that it's uh, solely in the the best interest of the offspring because it couldn't really be that way. It also has to have uh, some sort of an adaptive advantage to the parent as well uh, for those individuals to persist in the population. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, an yeah. another. Sorry, Charlie. Uh, you want to go? Oh, you keep going. Keep going. Oh, I was also thinking because you're talking about like this. Uh, retention of juvenile characteristics you were talking about birds i know there's a lot of um bird species where the female will actually uh during mating will adapt um behavioral characteristics that are kind of reminiscent of a juvenile to try and manipulate uh the male into increasing um investment uh i don't know if you guys have heard of that or not no that's new to me but now i gotta look this up <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll look it up <laughs> Do you, know what, do you know what species of bird that is? No, I can't remember. I'd have to check it out. Okay. And why do we think that is? Like, how would the male increase his investment if the female looks younger? Well, essentially, like, by mimicking a, uh, a young individual, she's tapping into the, um, the sort of uh, this Tinbergen 1 causation kind of thing that we've been talking about, where uh, the male will start responding to her as if she was one of his offspring. 
And so he'll give her resources because it's she's manipulating him into thinking that, uh, you know, oh, this is the response I see from uh, one of my young. So therefore, I have to act in this way and increase investment into this individual. That's sort of a, a crude way of explaining it. This, there's obviously yeah. more detail to it, but something along those lines. It's like a pretty stable strategy to use, right? Is the female looking like for a sugar birdie or something? <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like uh, it's it's also a system that could be easily hacked, right? I mean, like with the cuckoo bird, for example. I mean, I'm sure there's many species out there that must be taking advantage of this this um, this innate behavior. You know, the, the the need for the the parent to care for the offspring to put its own offspring into the the place of the other one. Um, so in this case. It was within the same species, so it would be advantageous for the species. But one could imagine that the same thing could happen where the, the species is actually suffering due to this this parasitism. Parasitism. Yeah, um, the, the cuckoo bird is a really great example, right? Where it's they're hijacking that behavior in the uh, in the other species. Um, so, well, from from uh, this idea of of these different species, um, I actually, just want to very quickly jump back. Um, into these other domesticated animals. So we we spoke earlier about these these domesticated animals being animals that we purposely domesticate due to either their ability to provide milk or meat or some other service to us. But what about the other animals that are not, in fact, domesticated by us on purpose? So, for example, squirrels and raccoons and skunks and... Um, all these different birds, you know, even in Australia and other parts of the world, you know, every, every, every country has this, whether they're, you know, a monkey or an, uh, you know, Australian ibis or something, you know, there's all these different, different animals that are being domesticated by us, but not on purpose. Uh, do we think that, you know, because there's not, there's certainly a relaxed selection pressure, um, because we're providing them with more food than they might have normally, but, do we think that that would also lead to the maintenance of juvenile characteristics amongst different uh, different you know, these other animals? Kind of, I, I suppose, similar to the way the cats were domesticated. You know, they just kind of hung around and and looked like you know very very young. And so now when we look at the domestic cat. I mean, even their calls are very similar to a a, a crying human child. And I think there's been some work that's even showed that. Um, that, that women that have had children recently will actually react similarly to a cat's call um, as a baby's call because of this, um, there's this kind of generalized behavior amongst all children crying uh, within those, those uh, I forget exactly how many months after, uh, after childbirth. Um, so, so we know that, you know, actually cats have hacked into us, right? They've manipulated us into taking care of them. Could this be happening with, with, other animals. You bring up an excellent point, Rune. Honestly, um, I wonder if we could see retention of juvenile characteristics in squirrels and raccoons, as an example, in Canada, because um, it is the fruit of some sort of relaxed selection where we <laughs> we allow, let's say, dogs to approach um, or more docile dogs to approach our our areas, when I say we, I talk about humans about, I don't know, 15 to 30,000 years ago, but like, can, could we observe the same thing in raccoons and squirrels? Do you think there's some sort of selection favoring individuals that are more docile? Or maybe docility could be 
um, linked to boldness or shyness or any anything that has to do with the temperament or personality. Um, I'm just throwing the second question in the air, essentially, and wondering if if there will be some retention of juvenile characteristics with uh, our system right now, with all these animals that are, have access to our resources, or do we need to actually actively push away, um, let's say, more aggressive individuals and, and almost accept or select for these? Because, like, what I'm trying to say is that squirrels and raccoons are not really any like aggressive at all to us no they're never really have a th- like constitute a threat to humans but i would figure that the wolves in the past were either a threat or not a th- and those that were not a threat were allowed to be around the village and those that were a threat were chased away chased away i'm sorry so what do you, what do you think about maybe like animals that might not have these aggressive behaviors if they would be able to evolve similarly in the future. Yeah, I think we're, we're definitely selecting for, um, for individual, like for, for different behavioral characteristics in the sort of urban environment. Right. So I don't know if we could say it's domestication. It's definitely altered selection pressures. Um, and, and I guess the question would be like, we're really looking at this on a case by case basis. So, the species we're looking at is going to matter, maybe even the population we're looking at. And whether or not these characteristics that we're selecting for, these behavioral characteristics, are linked to juvenile characteristics or not, that's that's really the question. If they are linked to juvenile characteristics, um, then maybe there could be a retention of, of juvenile characteristics that's occurring. But uh, again, I think it, it really depends what species we're looking at and what behaviors are actually being selected for. I think this idea of, of temperament, certainly, you know, the selection of temperament of, of more docile individuals is definitely playing into it. I think, I don't know. I think there is, I, I mean, yes, I agree. There's definitely relaxed selection pressure, but I think, or rather altered selection pressure. Um, but I think we are seeing domestication take place. Um, really actually, I, I think it's something that's inherent, not just in humans, but I believe there was an article very recently that showed that even was it chimpanzees are are domesticating dogs now, and uh, and so we're seeing this with with other species too. And so I guess the question also lies: is what what truly is domestication? I mean, is domestication just the the move towards a symbiotic relationship between two organisms? I mean, could a, a pigeon live today? Like, if we disappeared, if a pigeon could a pigeon still survive or could a raccoon still survive or will we, will they go extinct with us? And if that's the case, could we say that this is, well, maybe not a mutualistic association because we don't necessarily, if every pigeon went extinct, I'm pretty sure it'd be fine. Um, but if, you know, if, if, um, you know, if, if they are relying upon us to, to survive, I mean, maybe that's just a move to a different type of interaction. I mean, maybe this is occurring in many other species around the world, which we don't call it domestication. We just, Say that they're they're becoming more more tightly linked based on resource availability or, or something. So I, actually, yeah. So I guess that is that is where the altered selection pressure idea can come in. Um, the question, I suppose, is is there a, a threshold that we reach where now the these organisms are are unable to to go back to these these wild states, um, which kind of also brings this interesting idea of uh, brain development into into the mix because there's this idea that and, and they mentioned this in the paper that certain certain types of organisms would be better suited for this kind of thing simply because 
um, when when you have this shift towards earlier development, uh, you get earlier, you know, this, this brain, the brain is more plastic and it's strongly influenced by the social environment. Uh, so when we're talking about things like these, these altered selection pressure, we, we can also talk about the social environment that an individual is, say, born into. Um, I, I mean, what kind of environments do you guys think this would be a benefit in? What kinds of environments would this be an issue in? Where would it be a problem? And how come, you know, they, they mentioned this in the, in the article, how come we don't see other great apes showing this, uh, this shift towards um, the kind of traits, or I mean, maybe, maybe we do, um, the kind of lifestyle that we as humans lead. How come, you know, gorillas, for example, don't, and chimpanzees and bonobos and, and these other different relatives of ours don't have these similar, similar traits? Um, I don't think they've discovered fire yet. That does make a small difference. Yeah, I think but it's... No, jokes, jokes aside, I mean... You can go ahead, Kyle. Um, oh, well, no, I, I totally agree. I think it's uh, resource availability, like you were saying. Uh, we have fire, so it, it really opened up sort of the floodgates to what was possible for humans. Um, other apes are kind of confined to those restrictions of, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, the natural lifestyle and uh, energetic restriction. Uh, go, sorry, Charlie, go ahead. I interrupted you. Yeah, I mean, no, I think you just completed my point in some way, but yeah, I think the same thing that uh, the resources we have available to us made us evolve like much quicker than any other of the great apes just because we discovered fire, just because we had like access to such a high variety of food and nutrients. And to bring this back to uh, domestication and brain development, I think it's the same situation where individuals that are getting almost habituated to humans or getting domesticated, domesticated quote unquote, will have a lesser brain development because they don't get as stimulated. You know, they've evolutionary speaking, they've grown in one type of environment with all types of of stimulations or stimuli, and now they're just become like their brain doesn't need to be as developed to survive, to reach the resources they need to survive or to even transmit their genes. So like, let's say speaking of dumb and smart individuals, like the small brain dumb individual would have an equal chance of surviving than a smart individual just because there's no, again, we're talking about altered selection. I mentioned relaxed selection earlier, but any individual could make it when it's around the city, in a city setting when the food source is like unlimited for them and it's, it's present. 24-7. So are we saying that New York City rats will be maintaining juvenile characteristics over the uh, over the years? Will they be looking younger? Um, but actually, you know, okay, so just to jump jump back into the um, into the into the paper. Although actually I think that is something that's worth looking at, is whether or not these the, the rats that we see in the New York subway, which have an, an overabundance, I mean they have so many, so many um, they have so many resources available to them that they make these massive rat kings. I don't know if you guys have come across that before, but this they form these huge masses of rats where their tails become entangled with each other. Um, and, and they actually are able to survive in these kind of weird, creepy rat balls. Um, How do the, you call them? Rat kings? Rat kings. Yeah. Um, okay. And so... Uh-huh. Sorry? 
Go ahead. I was just saying, I don't know if I want to like look that up or not. <laughs> I am looking it up right now. I'm really curious. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, oh, that right there. God. I mean, maybe this is, is this is the movement from you know rats as a, as an individual organism to a social organism to you know what is now going to be a youth social organism. You know, imagine rats traversing the subway of of New York and, and the streets of New York as a as a giant slime mold type organism just built only of these rats. Um, so, so this, this kind of does give an idea of what can happen when you have this, you know, as you mentioned earlier, habituation, eventually domestication. Um, you know, I guess the difference is that they're not really providing us with a, with a directly, um, obvious, uh, you know, purpose, but, um, and, uh, yeah, so, so essentially the, um, these, uh, certainly we're, we're having this, this disproportionate effect on, um, on these uh, on these these organisms, um, and yeah, I can see here here Charlie that you're uh, you're sharing some images of these these rat kings in the chat, and uh, yeah, I, I I certainly implore anyone listening to this to go go search up rat kings right now and uh, make sure that you're not eating at this very moment. Um, it's actually another thing that I, I want to bring up is this idea of. Um, of dogs being defined into these specific groups based or rather these behavioral groups based on their morphology. You know, we had this, this, um, this kind of bill being passed here in, um, in Montreal or was it, I can't remember if it was Quebec wide where, uh, they wanted to ban pit bulls. And if you had a, if you had a pit bull, you had to get uh, already, if you had a pit bull, you had to get like a special license and, um, any new, you couldn't buy any new pit bulls. And, and so there was this, you know, a lot of people adopted pit bulls during this time because, um, essentially what, what, what a lot of people were saying was that, well, you can't, there's not even a standard definition for pit bull. You know, the word pit bull was used and, and, you know, dogs like pit bulls, but there's no clear, clear cut definition of what a pit bull is because, these breeds can vary so much. And, uh, and so this was a big point of contention. Um, and it was very recently, you know, in the past couple of years. So what do you guys think about this idea of, of breed specific culling more so the, this idea of, of taking action, um, on these species where we can't draw the line, but more so this idea that we can judge a breed's aggression and temperament, as we, we spoke about earlier, um, purely based on the way a dog looks. Yeah, I think um, in this kind of case, it's you really have to look at actual data. You can't just like base this on um, as anecdotal evidence, which seems to be the case in in uh, this situation. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of defining a breed, I mean, there you could make sort of a, a morphological checklist of what defines a pit bull. So. Again, they're arbitrary lines, but you can still define those lines. And uh, I think, in, in some cases, uh, behavior is linked to to uh, to a breed. So, if we look at uh, terriers, for example, we know that they're the most aggressive breed. They're implicated in the most amount of, um, I guess, attacks on people. So yeah, we got to look at like number of attacks and then how much damage each breed is doing. If we're going to make those kind of distinctions, um, but base it on evidence, don't base it on, um, oh, you know, this breed looks scary. And to add something to your point, Cal, uh, 
and I, I, I of course agree with your point. But you talk about terriers and pit bulls, and and we have to keep in mind that some dogs are purely selected for fight. You know, dog fighting, which is a thing, <laughs> which is actually a lucrative industry in some countries. And I think like the fact that there's also the stereotype around some type of dogs being better for dog fights, as an example, and and other dogs just looking like these dogs. So as you mentioned, there's just like we have to make some legitimate testing, I think, to define what an actual aggressive dog is and not only limited to the morphological features of a pit bull because it has nothing to, to do with the level of aggression of the individual. It's just about, I mean, it is like aggression and behavior could be marked genetically speaking. You know, there are genes for that. Do we know how to mark these genes or how to find the genes related to that? Not necessarily. But at, this, at the same time, there's a spectrum, like just like in, in any sort of behavior, in any population of the same species, you'll have some aggressive individuals versus some very docile individuals. So I think banning pit bulls in general, which is not even a breed itself, is just an uninformed decision. And I think, yeah, I just think that practices should be done better or, yeah, there should be more, uh, le let's say, legislation around breeding <laughs> dogs to make sure, like, or even the owner should be trained even better. So I think it comes down also to the owner of the dogs um, to, to train their dogs the right way. And if these owners need to be trained at first, maybe that's what they need as well. So we're saying that there is, so we're saying that there may or may not be a, uh, a link between morphology and, and temperament, or are we agreeing that there is? Well, I think that a, there is. There's a link between genetics and temperament, and morphology is linked to genetics as well. So, you know, if you see like, okay, this morphology is always hyper aggressive, well, there could be some kind of um, uh, genetic linkage that's there, right? So we can't discount morphology as having some kind of influence i think some genes will inevitably affect both morphology and temperament and this could be seen in fox um, as an example that when they've been bred to become more docile they have all these features that resemble the domesticated dogs especially the floppy ears you know the fox usually have very uh, upright Ears, but now that the fox have gone through a few generations, I forgot the name of the experiment itself. It's from a Russian scientist, um, but they essentially found that like the more like advanced or the more docile a fox would be, based on the selection process, the floppier his its ears would be, yeah. and like the tail as well of other animals that were domesticated would change. So there's definitely some sort of a link between yeah. morphology also, and temperament. They also found a, a difference in the the coat patterning as well. So yeah. when you think of like a, a cow, your classic cow with the, uh, you know, white and black uh, splotches, uh, that's, that's a patterning that's actually very characteristic of domestication. It, a lot of domestic animals have that patterning, and it's simply from um, the selection of less aggressive traits. So th there's, definitely like, uh, there's definitely a link between morphology and behavioral characteristics in a lot of cases. So I'm sure you guys both know where my next question is going to, to take us. This idea of, of morphology and, and, and characteristics being linked to temper, temperament. Can we say that the same occurs in, in humans? And if so, um, to what extent? And if not, why? Uh, you, you certainly could, but I think 
the thing is you have to look at like um, something like a dog breed. It's a very distinct uh, category. Whereas humans, we have a huge range of, of morphological characteristics. And to say that like, you know, we can pick one specific characteristic and say that's related to aggression. Well, I, I, don't, I wouldn't be so sold. It's there's, there's so much variation in the human population that I think it, it's really hard to pinpoint down like, Hey, this morphological characteristic, that's an aggressive person. There's also interaction. So, um, I think it's, it just becomes very complicated when you apply it to something as diverse as uh, human beings. And I also think, I mean, we, of course, some sort of morphological patterns are linked to, to behavior, but we are also the product of our, the product of our environment. So as an example, I could be a total, you know, I don't know, excuse my French, but I could be a total asshole um, because, not because of my genes, just because of the way I've been raised. The same person in the same conditions could just turn out to be a very nice person or some same person with the same genetic background as me, I mean, would just be a total nice person because they had a different education as an example. So the environment does have an important impact as well that we cannot forget. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So that, that kind of brings me in and that's where I'm really excited because starting, uh, starting from the next episode onward, we're going to be tackling some, some genetics, you know, genetic variation, population genetics. And we'll talk a little bit about this idea of the environment, in fact, affecting the, uh, the individual genes and, and this idea, this interplay between, uh, genetics and the environment and, and why, you know, why we can't classify, <laughs> let's say, temperament purely by something, by one trait, as you mentioned, Kyle, you know, like morphology. Um, but in fact, the, the outcome of an individual can be, based on, on a very wide variety of, of circumstances, but also, you know, genetic background and, and, um, and, you know, even, and across the development, you know, through epigenetics. So with that, I mean, do you guys have, what are your, what are your final thoughts? Would you, do you really like this paper? You guys want to see more of this? <laughs> I definitely want to see more of this. This was an interesting paper and just an interesting topic in general. So, yeah, I think domestication is a hot topic nowadays, especially with we haven't even tackled the exotic species situation. You know, like they I've seen like domesticated cougars and and some other sort of weird animals. I mean, lions and tigers and, you know, all these things that you see on, <laughs> on social media. And yeah, there's I mean, there's a big moral aspect to it as well. Why are we domesticating such big cats? What is the point of that? But again, that's a very interesting topic that is getting pretty interesting now that we can actually run experiments and turn these fully wild animals into actually docile animals in a few generations, you know, in the span of, I don't know, 100 years, not even. So that's something that's kind of concerning and interesting that we might use the science for, for, for our own pleasure. And I don't know, I, I don't think you could turn a fox into a friendly dog, but who knows so that is my final point yeah i thought it was i thought it was an interesting paper and um i think uh i'd be interested to see some examples where this you know retention of juvenile characteristics is occurring in a in a wild situation so um that's something that i'm definitely going to look into after this but uh yeah overall i thought it was it was very very interesting and yeah especially the conversation the conversation was really good so well, we touched everything from kangaroos to rat kings today. 
Um, yeah. Next, like I mentioned, next week we're going to go into genetics, but uh, I, I guarantee you we're going to be talking about the, uh, this, this implication of exotics, like you mentioned, Charlie, um, this domestication of exotics and, and the role that humans are playing on, on the species that, uh, you know, that we're bringing in from other parts of the world. And, and there's a very interesting invasive angle there, too.